Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, we talk to a global news reporter who is embedded on a campaign bus following a leader. What's that experience like? Donald Trump has chosen a new national security advisor. How long will he stay? We're going to start with failure to launch your kid. Canadian students, are they prepared for the real world and adulthood? Stop laughing. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Fascinating uh, article, uh, that uh, fascinating series of articles by Megan Coley. Uh, failure to launch kids, Canadian students aren't prepared for adulthood, and you can pick this up on the CHML or the Global website. Uh, this is the first uh, story in a four-part series about the transition between high school and the real world, whether it's college, university, the workforce, or something completely different. Failure to launch examines the gaps in Canada's education system. And to talk more about all of this, Megan Coley, the author of that, uh, online journalist with uh, Global News, is with us. Is with us now, Megan. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, hang on. Hang on, I'm missing it again. There it goes. All right, I'm not touching it. Megan, are you there? I'm here. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for being here. My producer and I are both standing with our hands in the air as if we've just you know, touched a hot stove. Does the phone work? Did it not work? Uh, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. I find this a fascinating topic because I have a kid in grade 7 and a kid in grade 12 right now. And I've, I've seen firsthand the stress of all of this. Um, uh, how are the kids not prepared for the next stage of life? What are we missing here? Yeah, so I think, you know, we interviewed kids from across the country, um, some of whom just went through this process, some of whom are entering into the process right now, and some who are a little bit older. And one sort of glaring uh similarity between all of them was that they had no idea what they wanted to do, but they were being asked to make this giant decision about what to do next, and it felt like they were going to pigeonhole themselves. So they were worried that they were going to enter into the wrong program or pick the wrong school or pick even the wrong kind of school, like university over college or vice versa. Um, And one thing that a lot of them voiced uh, worry about was that they were so young that they hadn't really had a chance to figure out what they actually liked and how that could actually translate to the workforce. How do you prepare students more for this? What do you do? Yeah, so, you know, I spoke to a couple experts about this and, uh, you know, as, as you know, I'm sure and here in Ontario, we have just announced um, a financial literacy course for grade 10 students. Yep. I asked an expert about that and she basically said if you think this is the silver bullet to preparing kids for their futures uh, you're overestimating the power of one single course hmm. so where traditionally we've been placing emphasis on quote-unquote hard skills um, a lot of experts are pushing now for those quote-unquote soft skills social emotional skills like you know the ability to share the ability to get along with others the ability to problem solve All of these things can help students prepare for the rapidly changing workforce. You know, technology is advancing at a very quick rate. They need to be resilient to that change and be prepared for anything. The reality being that a lot of these kids who are graduating now will likely have jobs in the future that don't even exist yet. Good point. 
Um, getting back to why they're not prepared. Um, you know, I remember when uh, I was in school many years, uh, uh, many years ago, um, that that we were always encouraged to take other things to branch out. Now it seems that you know we're away. We, we've moved moved away from classes, even like gym, so we can take another math, so we can concentrate more on the STEM courses. Uh, is has there been too much time spent on that? Or, or moving the kids in that direction because it's such a competitive world and they have to be highly educated and not enough time spent on social skills on how you get through day-to-day life. Like I can remember home economics or family studies being a, ca- a class back in grade 13 in the old days, which sort of delved into this sort of stuff. Now that would be considered a tweet-tweet course and you should be taking another math or science instead. Exactly. I think you're pointing to a really interesting reality that's happening in high schools across the country right now. But I also think what's happening in that sort of stigma around, okay, you should, as you say, drop gym for another math. Um, What's happening there is kids who aren't academically inclined, quote unquote, or who, you know, aren't good at math and actually really don't like it, they're taking all the math their school has to offer and going on to taking a university course in math and then finishing the degree and realizing, I don't like this. I was doing this because of a stigma or a stereotype about, you know, what is expected of kids my age. And I was doing it to please my parents or my teachers. But now I've wasted four years of my time and thousands of dollars. And I don't know what I actually want to do. Now I'm 23, 24. And I have to go back to school to get, um, you know, the education that will actually apply to the thing I want to do. You know, Megan, I can almost see this have been being more of a problem in the old days when people would enter a career and then stay there for a lifetime or 20, 30, 40 years or so. But I find it ironic that so much pressure is put on kids to pick the right career path in high school for post-secondary when at the end of the day, chances are they're, like you said, they're going to be in something that's completely different or something that they hadn't even thought about. So how do you balance keeping broad and open-minded because the career that you may choose in the future may not have even even be around yet uh, with picking certain courses because really the the reality would say I want to stay broad I don't want to I don't want to focus on one thing I don't want to concentrate on this exactly and it, you know this really requires a community approach from the first day that a kid enters into high school which can obviously be tricky for a number of reasons but when we say community approach we're talking not just about educators we're talking about school counselors we're talking about parents we're talk- talking about mentors and really what experts are saying we need more of is um, a collaborative approach where everyone is working together to make sure that each individual student is identifying their passions, their interests, their likes, and their dislikes, and then they're crafting their pathway as they go according to that. So it's it's on one hand keeping it broad and saying, okay, I can see myself, you know, maybe doing something that could need math because I'm not that bad at it and I like it. Um, so I'll keep that in the mix. But I know right now that biology and chemistry aren't for me, so I'm going to drop those and try out something new. It's really, to get kids to be able to realize these things about themselves too, it's really important that we're having conversations with them all the time about who they feel they are and what they're learning about themselves as they go through high school. Is this the school's responsibility? Uh, What role do the parents play in all of this? 
I mean, again, experts are really pushing for this community approach. So I do think that schools play a massive part. It's where our kids are spending most of their time and their formative years. Um, so I think for a school to be able to provide uh, opportunity, career integrated learning, you know, maybe the chance for a co-op or hands-on experience, and also for a school to be able to provide a wide range of programs for offer. Um, those are definitely things that we should be considering and prioritizing. But I do think, too, that it's up to parents to pick up the slack where where school can't and have those one-on-one -on -one conversations with their kids, you know, even on the drive home from school. What did you learn today? How can you see yourself taking that into the future? Uh, is this any different than it was for past generations, uh, whether it's 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30, 40, 50 years ago? Is, I mean, the same pressures there? Mm -hmm. This is a really interesting question. You know, change has always been a factor for kids this age. It's no secret that kids 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, when they left high school and went to university or college or wherever they went after, it was scary and different for them. What's different for these kids today is that the workforce is changing at a rate like we've never seen it before. Yeah. The demands of the job market are changing. What a student may see as a quote-unquote good choice for a career when they start their degree or diploma, by the end of those four years or five years, uh, it could be a completely saturated market. So what we're really, one thing experts emphasize really needing to prepare students for is this rate of change and um, resiliency so that if that happens to them, they're able to pivot and find ways to transfer the skills that they've learned for one career to multiple different careers. So should you should you follow your strengths and take those courses that you are good on in and drop the ones that you are not? Or are you limiting your uh, potential by not, you know, sticking with those courses that are tough and you may not be that interested in, whether it's a math or a science, what have you? This is an interesting question. I always feel personally connected to it because I was awful at math. Um, and I wish I could have just dropped it right away. <laughs> I, I, um, I echo exactly what you're saying. Probably many years think, earlier than you, though. <laughs> what I think I'm hearing from experts and students alike is that it really is a balance. And this sounds sort of cliche, but it comes down to the in individual student. If you don't love math, for as an example, but you can make it through with good grades, why not keep that door open? If you if think you can do it every day, if you think you can do it every day and make a living at it, good for you then. Keep going with it. Well, exactly, right? Um, but I think if you know that you're super passionate about something, then you should follow that too. But we also need to consider that there are a lot of um, differences between cultures. There are differences between, um, you know, different communities in terms of income. So it, it comes, there are tons of factors at play here. Um, and really what we need to do is just ensure that we're providing students with the right supports at home and at school so that they can explore and make these decisions on their own, knowing what's best for them. How I'm I'm old enough to remember. I went to grade thirteen back in the day. That's that's how you uh, you know went on to to post secondary. Uh, then they they got rid of grade thirteen, and I think Ontario was like the last province to do so. But I've heard many people say that you know what that extra year just gives the kids an extra extra time to grow up. Uh, is is there maybe something there that we're trying to kick them out too early? Uh, and get them into university before they're legally of drinking age. 
this is a really not that the two are cor- not that the two are are, are are related in any way, but you know, it's just like they're barely driving and they're going to university. No, you're right, and especially for those kids who are born in the latter half of the year, you have some kids who are going to be applying to university this year that have just turned 17. And I spoke to one expert. She's a psychotherapist here in Toronto, and um, she was saying she's actually concerned about, like, the state of a teen brain, uh, especially when we're placing these pressures on them. The part of the brain that is responsible for long-term decision-making and understanding consequences and things like that is still very much in the development phase. And to ask these kids to make a, a decision that could potentially affect them for 5, 10, 15 years down the line, it's, it's a big ask. And it can actually parlay into real stress, real anxiety, depression, other mental illness, and even things like substance abuse. So I think that this is also something we need to consider. One expert I spoke to, uh, she works in Quebec, and she was saying she loves Sejet for that exact reason, which is a college that... Um, high school students go to before they can move on to post-secondary and she said it was an amazing way for kids to really explore their likes and dislikes in a hands-on way and it saved students a a lot of time and a lot of money because a lot of them got to stage up and realize oh I absolutely hate this thank goodness I didn't go on to do a degree in this. (laughs) Uh, Do you think there is uh, value in kids doing the victory lap? I often hear my daughter talk about that kids that you know they just don't know what they want to do so they circle back around for another semester Uh, you know this is interesting this was not something we covered in my series but um just based on talking to students and talking to experts i'm not actually sure that that would be the right choice because i feel like the way the iteration that a a a victory lap takes in Ontario, it would really just be a repeat of grade 12. Right, yeah. I'm not sure how how helpful that would be in terms of relearning the same curriculum, unless you actually struggled with the curriculum the first time around. Um, in terms of learning more about yourself, I've heard some students sing the praises of a gap year where they, you know, again, this is a privileged position. Students, Some yeah. students are able to take a gap year. But if you can, a lot of them were saying they would have, really appreciated a year to just dig into them and figure out a little bit more about who they are and and where they see themselves going. But, you know, again, not all kids have that ability. Do you have to do something productive during that gap year? Or can you just veg and think about it? I mean, that would drive the parent nuts, I would think. Yeah, I was thinking of my own parents. I'm not sure I would be allowed to just take a year. That's right. I'm just going to sit on the couch, Mom and Dad, for the year, and and I want to figure out what I really want to do so I don't waste your money. Yeah, I'm not sure about that, but I have heard some success stories of kids working and going out into the workforce. You know, there are a few jobs you can get with the experience that grade uh, grade 12 student has, um, but a lot of kids, even just working at like their local Starbucks or things like that, they, they said it was an amazing opportunity for them to earn some money and go into university with a clear head or college with a clear head and a clear understanding of what they wanted and, um, you know, a couple bucks in their pocket too, never hurt. What did you learn from doing this series? I mean, obviously you're not that far out of school. You're a lot younger than I am. What did you learn about this? I learned that not everybody has a clear path. And I think I was one of the lucky ones. I always really was 
inclined to write and to read. And it was something that became clear to me well before I, I entered into my post-secondary. And, and let me ask you this, Meg, and let me ask you this. How many kids that you went to school with said to you, you're so lucky you know what you want to do? All of them. I, really I remember that as, as a guy in my 50s, I, re- I was the same way as you. I knew what I wanted to do right away. And I, I, I can remember kids saying to me, man, you don't know how lucky you are that you know what you want to do at that age. And that would have been a long time before you do it. So it's kind of like the same issue, isn't it not? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the the pressure that we're putting on these kids to, to figure it out, because, you know, when you're in grade 12, um, there's really no question of what comes next. It's not uh, are you going to go on to post-secondary? It's where are you going to go and how are you going to do it? Um, and I think for some kids, it's not as much of a given. They need time to figure it out. And, you know, I spoke to a couple students who are have finished their post-secondary journeys now, and they've said, if I were to go back, I wouldn't go and do that program. I would do this program, or I would, instead of a degree, I would do a diploma. I would have saved 10 grand. I would have been out in the workforce within two years. Hmm. So I think it's, it's, it's such a formative time in a student's life. Only a small percentage of them feel confident in the decisions that they're making. Most of them, it works out, but there are, there is that in the middle group that, you know, kind of falls through the cracks. And that's really what I'm hoping this series will, will eliminate. Uh, failure to launch kids. Canadian students aren't prepared for adulthood. It's the first of a four-part series. What else are you going to cover? Uh, i got about 30 seconds left here, Megan. Anything you want to promote? What's what's What are the next series uh, talk about? Sure, yeah. So uh, next Tuesday, we're going to focus on school counselors and their role in the transition and how they don't have enough resources right now to adequately help students prepare for the next step. Failure to launch kids. Canadian students aren't prepared for adulthood. It's done by Megan Colley, and you can uh, uh, attain this on the Global News website or CHMLs. Megan, thanks so much for the time and insight. Good piece. Thanks so much. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on south of the border into the United States. Uh, President Trump has chosen Robert O'Brien to be his new national security advisor. This after uh, John Bolton uh, was let go uh, after holding the position. What do we know about this person? To talk more about all of this, Michael Trogott is with us, Professor Emeritus of Communication Studies and Political Science, Authority on Communication, Public Opinion and Media Polling, University of Michigan, and is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good to be with you, Scott. Before we get into uh, the National Security Advisor, any new uh, developments regarding the bombing of Saudi Arabian oil infrastructure? Anything more to report there as far as we understand that things are getting back up and running, uh, but any more as far as who's to blame or the president's stance on this? Well, there's apparently been a press conference in Saudi Arabia uh, in which the... um, Saudi government is using the language that uh, Iran sponsored the attacks, which is not a definitive statement about the the missiles and the drones originating in Iran. Um, They presented some evidence, which uh, includes uh, camera surveillance of the facility and then some bits and pieces of the uh, weapons. And the president has announced that he's going to, through Secretary uh, Mnuchin, increase sanctions on Iran, but we don't know the details of that either. So 
the, there seems to be a growing uh, evidence and concern about Iranian involvement, but still no definitive uh, description of how they did this. Will things settle down for the time being, or are we expecting more of this? Well, we don't know yet. Uh, uh, it'll depend, I think, on uh, uh, Secretary of State uh, Pompeo's visits in the in the Middle East. Uh, it looks like uh, because the U.S. government hasn't uh, provided visas to an advance party uh, for the uh, Iranian uh, delegation to the United Nations, that President Rouhani is not going to go to the U.N., next week in New York. And so the chance of a conversation between uh, the President of the United States and the President uh, of Iran is not going to take place. So at this point... At least not on that schedule. So at this point, we just wait for another shoe to drop? I think that's... I think that's... uh, I think that's where we are, actually. And it could be that part of this uh, test, if you want to describe it as that... Um, <clears throat> involving the attack on the on the Saudi facility is to see whether and how the president does respond, if he's serious or if it's just bluster. Does the president have to make a substantial move here? Does he have to react? How will Iran react if he doesn't? Well, he doesn't. He doesn't have to react, of course, and he doesn't have to use uh, military force. There are a variety of other options he has, including some kind of uh, cyber attack. Uh, But he's beginning to uh, feel some pressure from Republican hawks about the uh, importance of some kind of military action. We'll have to see whether he can resist that. Uh, What kind of effect will more sanctions have? Uh, it's, It's not clear, really, what... Uh, the additional effect of uh, more sanctions will be um, what has happened in the past, for example, with the Russians, is that when uh, increased sanctions have been applied, they don't really affect the government. They affect uh, individuals and and their financial resources. I don't know uh, uh, how well that would apply to the Iranian uh, situation. All right, let's uh, move on to uh, Donald Trump and his new national security advisor, Robert O'Brien. What happened, first of all, what happened with John Bolton? Uh, He was handpicked, as as many national advisors have been in the past. When did John Bolton fall out of favor with the president? Well, we don't know for certain, uh, but there always was a fundamental conflict between uh, John Bolton's view of the world, which was pretty aggressive, and uh, uh, Donald Trump's view of the world, which is, in military terms, relatively passive. And uh, particularly with regard to uh, uh, Iran and the Middle East, uh, there was a growing difference of opinion about policy. But there also uh, seemed to be an increasing set of personality conflicts that are linked to the uh, assertive nature of John Bolton and his uh, arguments with other members of the president's uh, inner circle about policy. And so 
I think it just finally became uh, uh, too much for the president. And, of course, there's a disagreement about whether he was fired or he resigned. Right. So why did, uh, if, if they had such a different view, uh, uh, certainly when it comes to aggression, why did Donald Trump put him there in the first place? Uh, we, don't know the, we don't know the answer to that because uh, John Bolton has a long history in foreign relations uh, on the Republican side, and his views were well known. So it, it uh, couldn't have been any surprise to, to Donald Trump. So what do we know about Robert O'Brien, the new uh, Nationalist Security Advisor? Well, uh, in personal terms, you know, O'Brien is a lawyer. Uh, he, he works in a kind of uh, a boutique uh, firm in California. But he is uh, a, a lifelong Republican, and he has... Um, he has been a member of multiple uh, Republican administrations going back to George W. Bush. He currently, or, or up until today, had served as a kind of hostage uh, negotiator with uh, rank of ambassador in the Trump administration. He um, s- seems to have an outgoing personality. He gets along well with uh, others in the administration. I think that goes to the point of uh, turmoil uh, that John Bolton uh, created in the administration. Yesterday, there was a list of five people that uh, President Trump said he was considering. And keeping in mind that this is the fourth national security advisor in the Trump administration, Mm. uh, this was a relatively safe and not so controversial choice. Uh, the fact that he is the fourth, what does that say? Well, the president, I think, uh, uh, just in the last several days, said that this was the easiest job in the world because there was nothing really to do because he made all the decisions. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Well, then let's sign up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to be chosen by him, mm-hmm. and you have to have... Uh, uh, a pretty good sense of uh, what the strengths and weaknesses of the position are and be willing to take that on, I think. but So it would be hard to sign on right away. So is, uh, is this man qualified? Is O'Brien qualified for this job? What, what's think, in it What's I, in it for him? Well, th- those are two different questions. I think he is qualified. He's worked in the State Department in multiple administrations. He's used to uh, traveling uh, overseas, and I don't think we—I don't think that we know this exactly. But in the kind of work that he did, dealing with uh, uh, hostages and hostage releases, he must have access to uh, classified material. Um, so I, I think that part would be, you know, pretty straightforward for him. Um, I think he did this because he's a loyal Republican, but I'm not sure there's anything uh, that's directly beneficial to him in this arrangement, in this in this new position. What he's do doing we... it because somebody needs to do it, and he's willing to take on the task. Uh, what about his personality? Uh, obviously, uh, with the amount of personnel changes there's been at the White House, um, it takes a certain type of person to be able to survive there. Um, what do we know on that front? 
Well, I guess he's a. I guess his help as a hostage negotiator may help here. Yeah, I mean we don't know too much about that because I think that in his work as a hostage negotiator, he wasn't actually in the White House very much, right? He was traveling around the world, and one big difference in this position is that he will have uh, uh, an office and a staff in the White House or in the executive office building, and so that would be quite different. But uh, based upon his experience in uh, dealing with uh, uh, conflicting parties, he also had some experience working at the United Nations. He, he, he ought to be able to work his way through this, at least for a reasonable period of time. Um, Bolton, many said that Bolton was too aggressive, uh, with, you know, lock and load all the time. What about O'Brien? How does he, how does he compare there? Well, I actually don't think we we uh, we know very much about that. Um, he he worked for uh, Condoleezza Rice when she was uh, Secretary of State, and um, he he has worked with various uh, uh, presidential committees and commissions, um, and he has had some experience with international terrorism. So uh, I think he has a you know reasonable prospects of of doing well. Uh, the immediate set of issues involve Iran, and we don't know really very much about his experience with the Iranians. Is Donald Trump taking a more passive approach? Is he dialing it back by choosing someone like this over a Bolton? Uh, I'm not sure that that's true. I think that even during his campaign, Donald Trump uh, indicated that he, uh, as part of his America First strategy overall, he wanted to withdraw the United States from a number of foreign engagements and uh, what he probably thought of, thinks of as entanglements. So uh, having a less aggressive national uh, security advisor I think is consistent with that. So calmer waters ahead? Well, to the extent that they're under the control of the United States, yes. But of course, incidents like the one in Saudi Arabia are outside of the control of the United States. And so there's always an element of this position that involves uh, designing appropriate responses and reactions. How close would O'Brien and Trump be prior to this? You said that he didn't spend a lot of time in the White House because he was out busy working. Uh, Trump's tweet says, I've worked long and hard with Robert. He, he will do a great job. In what capacity? How have they? Does he know the, this person well, or do these two people know each other well? Well, they must have talked uh, and interacted a fair amount about North Korea, mm-hmm. uh, which was you know, one of his uh, assignments. Um, he also had a kind of a strange assignment, which was, you know, to go to uh, Sweden uh, to observe uh, this uh, legal proceeding against ASAP Rocky. But um, I, I think I have to assume that uh, O'Brien knows what he's getting into. Uh, does he have uh, political ambitions? Would would this be a stepping stone for him in some way? I don't believe so. I, I, I think he, you know, is trained as a lawyer and uh, has a good 
legal practice. He's never run for uh, elective office before, and uh, that's why I'm inclined to say that he thinks of this more as service to his party and to the government than as uh, a career move. How are the rest viewing this appointment? Is this a good hire? Uh, Does this signal more uh, uh, divisiveness in the White House? How is this appointment being viewed? Well, I don't think we know very much about that yet, they're, they're, uh, uh, because the appointment is so fresh, and also because the appointment does not require Senate confirmation. So there's not going to be a lot of, you know, public discussion or debate about this, in, you know, in the Congress. Um, <clears throat> if people decide that uh, this is a, a, a reasonable appointment of a less contentious individual, I think it'll be received well, probably. Uh, so has there so there hasn't been any real uh, opposition reaction to this appointment? No, not really. No, no, no uh, extensive discussion. He's only been appointed for you know the appointment's only been announced for a few hours. I can't let you go uh, without uh, asking you, Michael, uh, your thoughts on Sean Spicer on Dancing with the Stars. (laughs) (laughs) I've only seen uh, a little uh, video clip of his uh, lime ruffled shirt. Yes. Pretty amazing. Uh, How does that make us view the White House? I... um... You know, well, I don't think it's I don't think it's related to the White House. No, it's not. Well, no, but he was once a you know obviously communications director. Is this just more of shaking your head? Well, I I, I think from Sean Spicer's uh, perspective, this is probably another step in his attempted rehabilitation. But uh, we'll have to see how accepting. Uh, the public is of him in this particular role. Apparently he didn't score too well. (laughs) I don't think so. Uh, Michael Trogott has been with us, Professor Emeritus of Communication Studies and Political Science, University of Michigan. Michael, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, Scott. Good to chat. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Mike LaCouture uh, LaCouture, uh, from Global News. He is with the Sheer Campaign. He is with us now. Mike, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So before we get started here, what's it like to ride these buses, Mike? What's it like to be a part of this campaign and embedded in this campaign? It's really fascinating. and uh, I've been with Global in Ottawa for uh, eight years now. Uh, but this is our first campaign. Last year we did it, uh, not last year, 2015, we did it a little differently. Uh, so I can tell you, it, it really is interesting because you are on the bus, as you said, embedded with the campaign. Uh, you know, there are times when we're at breakfast and... Andrew Shear and his wife are right there at the next table next to you. Um, so it, it's kind of fascinating in that way, but it's also interesting to see the machine at work. You know, where we are, are uh, you know, walk, we are uh, rolling away now from uh, the, the sort of lookout area over Hamilton now on our way to the, the Greater Toronto area. Uh, and, uh, you know, just to see the different movements and to see how the actual machine works is, is really fascinating from the inside. So who is on the bus? Who uh, Give us a rough idea what it's like on the, on the bus. Uh, on the bus that I'm on right now is uh, journalists and uh, call them handlers uh, you know, from the party. Um, and Mr. Shearer is on another bus where he has his political advisors uh, closer to him. I was on the NDP bus um, last week 
for a little bit. And right now they only have a bus. They don't have a plane. As opposed to the Conservatives and, uh, and the Liberals, the NDP are going to uh, you know, kick off their plane campaign um, in a week or so. Uh, but what you see in the NDP bus is that you are actually the journalists are on the same bus as Jagmeet Singh. Uh, and whereas the NDP is sort of promoting this as you know, unfettered and direct access to their leader, the fact of the matter is is that finances are an issue yeah. with the NDP. So that's kind of why uh, they've only had one bus. Uh, but, you know, I'm speaking to you from, uh, you know, a, a nice big coach bus where I've got my own desk, uh, sort of two seats so I can lay out all my materials and my laptop and whatnot. Uh, in the back of the bus, if I can paint a picture for people, there's a coffee machine, there are snacks. Uh, they make sure they keep us well fed because, as uh, everybody knows, an angry journalist is not one that, uh, <laughs> that you want around you, right? Oh, man. So how many would be, so there's two separate buses for the larger campaigns. Uh, how many people would be on the bus that you're on the press bus? There's about 13 journalists, uh, which includes a pool crew, and, and so that, uh, you know, listeners understand that, uh, you know, the parliamentary press gallery operates this way where people charge one station and for this leg of, uh, of the Tory campaign, the, the global crew, so we've got two cameramen, a producer, we're in charge of uh, filming all of the on-cameras for journalists for, uh, and all of the images for this campaign that we send back to uh, about eight networks that share the video. Uh, it's just a more comprehensive way of doing things. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just to give you an example, I'm surrounded by journalists from different publications, different, you know, radio stations, and, um, and and TV colleagues. I call them colleagues, not competitors, because we do like each other to a certain extent. For some people, anyway. I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> so no, it. but that that's that's fascinating. Do uh, because again, you are uh, you're all in the same industry, but you are all competitors, but you're all peers. So what is what is the morale like? What is the feeling like on the bus? Do you do you chat amongst each other a, a lot? Do you talk about different stories? Yeah, and and in fact. Um, we, when we chat with each other, it's, it's a lot about, um, you know, making sure that we all are sort of understanding the announcement the way that one person heard it. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of uh, camaraderie in that uh, and that detail. Did I just hear him say that properly? Yeah, you heard that too. Uh, you know, so that we can either tweet it or go back. Uh, and it's not like time journalism. I want people to understand. It's not that at all. Uh, but what people... Sorry, repeat that again, Mike. You just sort of broke out. What is it like yeah. again? Yeah, I said it, it, it's not like pack journalism, you yeah, know what I mean? It's yeah. not like it's we all get together and have one, one common thought. It's the fact that, uh, you know, political journalists um, have to hold any leader and any politician to account. So that's our job. And whether we do it on our own or we do it all together as a group, uh, I think that listeners and viewers have to understand that we are doing it for the listeners and the viewers. We are trying to make sure that we hammer at these uh, politicians, and, and it's not an us versus them, uh, but in a sense it is, right? Because it's journalists trying to hold politicians to account. How much access do you have to the leaders? How much access do you have to Andrew Shear in this case? Um, so far, we've had tons to Andrew Shear. Uh, there have been daily press briefings. In fact, uh, when we got on the first leg of this trip on Saturday, um, it was at 10 p.m. Eastern that we departed Ottawa from Vancouver. Somewhere over the prairies, I guess, uh, he came to the back of the plane to hold a press conference, which was maybe around midnight Eastern. Uh, and I'm not uh, for one second trying to look for any kind of pity for uh, from your listeners. But then 
you know, you spend the next part of your flight writing a story, uh, and when you plan, <laughs> you know, let's say 2 a.m. or, you know, 1, 2 a.m. Uh, Pacific time, you, you got to jump in front of a camera and say something coherent, yeah. uh, you know, to, to present it to, to people. So, uh, look, I'll be honest, uh, it's my first, it's a bit of a grind, uh, but I relish the opportunity to be part of this because for a political reporter, uh, you know, one of my colleagues described it as the Olympics for, for yeah. us. Uh, this, this is one of the, you know, it, this is the biggest story politically in the country, and we're excited to, to tell it to our listeners and viewers. So what's it like being on the road with uh, with these people, specifically Sheer for you, obviously? What's the response been when they go and do these cattle call type uh, rallies and such? What, what, what's that What's that like? What's the response been like? Because for Sheer, obviously, uh, you know, he's he's up against an incumbent that is very well known uh, and, and has a popular brand. H- how has he been received? Uh, he's been very well received, but also keep in mind that a lot of these campaigns are extremely well choreographed. So it's not as if, uh, you know, Andrew Shear, Jagmeet Singh, or Justin Trudeau are going to go to places where they won't get a warm reception. Right. There are, are very few of those, oops, we didn't anticipate that kind of moments. Uh, one thing I will, you know, note is we were in, in uh, Parksville, uh, BC, and it, well, it must have been at least 300 people in a hall for, you know, a, a meeting and for, you know, a, you know, a rallying speech. But then when we went to Alberta, it was uh, the Calgary Skyview riding, which is, you know, uh, kind of in the heart of conservative uh, Alberta. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was only about 150 to 200 people at this rally for the campaign office, uh, for the opening of campaign office of the candidate there. And whenever we put this to the uh, conservative staffers and handlers, and, and even uh, Mr. Shear, he says, well, look, our, our goal really is not to take people away from the doorstep and away from actually knocking on those doors and getting those votes. Hmm. Uh, so we don't want pe- a lot of people at those rallies. The fact of the matter is, is those rallies uh, are, are two things. One, it's a visual thing to get the leader out there, uh, you know, not only on national TV, but even locally. And two, it's a rally for the people on the ground. Mm. Picture yourself if you're a volunteer on the ground. You're there and surrounded by hundreds upon hundreds of other volunteers who are there to support them. You, were, you are buoyed by that support. It puts a little more spring in your step to go knock on the doors. But if you're only you know, a few of them or you know, 150, 200 people, you have to wonder whether or not uh, you know, that affects morale uh, with the team. I was on another radio station in, in Edmonton, and, and I think a caller or, or somebody texted in, uh, you know, well, they held it at 5.30 in the afternoon, so, you know, that's when people are working. It, it's true, but at the same time, you have to ask two questions then. Whose decision was it to hold it at 5.30 yeah. when not a lot of people could come? And, and, and two, you know, uh, if, if, it, if there are that many supporters and volunteers, that ostensibly they would take time out to be there for 5.30. Uh, any reaction from Andrew Shear to the polls, uh, which virtually have uh, him and uh, the, the Prime Minister neck and neck? Uh, a new global uh, poll asked who would be best suited for Prime Minister. Actually, 37% said Trudeau, uh, a 7% jump since August, 30% for Scheer. Uh, but on, on contrast, a Nanos poll uh, said that uh, the Conservatives coming in at 37%, the Liberals at 35 I guess the question asked has a lot to do with it as well. What's his response on being neck and neck with the Prime Minister at this point? 
Yeah, I mean, anytime we ask them about it, and any politician will basically say this, the only poll that matters is the one on election day when yeah. people are actually casting ballots. Um, but, you know, I, I think internally they're happy that there's, uh, you know, they're that close. But at the same time, after all of the SNC-Lavalin scare, uh, scandal that they had hoped would really put some distance between them, uh, they also have to be concerned that they're not ahead or they're not further ahead uh, because, you know, the Trudeau Liberals have had so many issues. Uh, you would think that they would have uh, either in one poll a lead or a wider lead. Um, so one of the issues Andrew Shearer has is not a lot of people know him. I mean, you have to yeah. you have to keep in mind this guy's been in the House of Commons uh, for well over ten years. But for a lot of that, he was the Speaker of the House, a very neutral position um, that you know didn't shine in question period unless there was a ruckus going on in question period, and we had to show him trying to take control of it. So his policy, how he is as a politician hasn't really been out there much, and that, that's what this campaign's going to be about for him, to make sure that he gets his personality and his policies out there and have people know who Justin, who's, uh, Andrew Scheer is because they know who Justin Trudeau is. Mike LaCouture has been with us from Global News. He's a reporter embedded in the campaign, on the bus with the Scheer campaign as we speak. Mike, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Have fun. Good luck. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.